Happy New Year, Living Hope family. Don't you all, he, he hates being called out, but don't you all love it when Casey leads that song? It's, it is like having Johnny Cash up here. I absolutely love it. I actually, when I was a kid, my church was involved with the Billy Graham crusade at Veterans Stadium in Philadelphia. And Johnny Cash was supposed to be there, and he got sick. And I never got to saw, see him. I was really looking forward to that. I was super bummed out. Anyways, I digress. Earlier this week, my son, Alec, asked me, hey, he said, hey, Dad, what are you preaching on this Sunday? And I responded, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. And he said, well, what's that about? And I instinctively replied by quoting the passage, right? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. At least that is the best that I remember it. Alec, somewhat surprised, asked, wait, you have that memorized? And I explained to him, yeah, I have, I have it memorized. I, it's a common memory verse, and I've had, of it, I've had it memorized since I was a very little boy. Tim Keller often refers to the Proverbs as the hard candy of the Word. The hard candy of the Word. We're familiar with the milk of the Word and the meat of the Word, the former being the elementary principles of the faith and the latter being the, the, the weightier principles of the faith. But, but Keller presents us with a third category, hard candy. The Proverbs are, are relatively simple, easily understood, and accessible principles that can lead to a faithful and abundant life when consistently and faithfully applied. However, despite their relative simplicity, they cannot be quickly digested. Like a piece of hard candy, the Proverbs must be savored to be understood and applied. Have you ever found yourself longing for a new word from the Lord? Have you ever found yourself longing for a new word from the Lord? You were, you were stuck in a bad situation, a bad pattern of thought. You could, you could feel your heart hardening in your chest. And all you wanted was for the heavens to open up and for the Lord to, to call down and say something, anything. Something that, that, that would soften your heart, restore your joy, and, and, and bring you hope. So what did you do? You grabbed your copy of the daily bread. You retreated to a quiet place, hoping to encounter God. But you were met by deafening silence. The daily devotional that you hoped would bring a new word provided more of a daily crumb than daily bread. So you slumped back into your hopelessness, got up, and went about your day. You know, more often than not, when we're down and out, we don't actually need a new word from the Lord. We don't actually need a new word from the Lord. Like a piece of hard candy, we just need to savor the word that He's already given to us. That's what I've found over the past few weeks. This little piece of scripture, which I committed to memory nearly 40 years ago, 
has brought me new life and a fresh perspective as I have slowly and thoughtfully digested the simple yet nuanced truth within. So this familiar and often memorized passage is like an everlasting gobstopper straight out of Willy Wonka's factory. You can savor it forever and ever. Its flavor will never fade or diminish. It will only grow richer and fuller with each savoring moment that passes. Now, there are just a a little more than 10,000 minutes in a week. We only have about 30 minutes together. So we're not going to savor this morning as much as we're just going to unwrap this hard candy this morning. And I'll have to leave the savoring to you later this week. So as we unwrap this passage together this morning, uh, we're going to see that God will guide us throughout this life when we trust and acknowledge Him. So take your Bibles with me. Turn to Proverbs chapter 3. And it'll be in verses 5 and 6. Now, Proverbs 3, 5 through 6 contains a, a twofold imperative. Uh, we're to trust the Lord, verse 5, and acknowledge the Lord, verse 6. And we'll take a look at each of these in turn, but before we do, we need to take a look at the, the cosmological reality that, that, that undergirds both of these imperatives. See, God's name is almost always translated, as it is here in the Old Testament, as Lord. You see, capital L, sometimes you'll see it in all caps. But in Hebrew, his name would be pronounced something like Yahweh. When we see the word Lord, we're apt to think of someone in a position of worldly power and authority, right? Plenty of people have held the title Lord throughout world history, but only one has held the name Yahweh. Yahweh is not a a title, but a proper name built on the word for I am, which implies that God is self-existent. There's this great list of explanations that comes from John Piper. He explains that Yahweh never had a beginning. Nobody made him. He simply is and always was. Yahweh will never end. If he, if he did not come into being, he cannot go out of being because he is being. Yahweh is absolute reality. There is no reality before him. There is no reality apart from him. No space, no, no, no universe, no emptiness. Only Yahweh. Yahweh is utterly independent. He depends on nothing to bring him into being or support him or counsel him or make him what he is. Everything that is not Yahweh depends totally on Yahweh. The entire universe came into being by him and stays in being moment by moment on his decision to keep it in being. This is why Paul said to, with such confidence to the unbelieving people of Athens, he said, in him we live and move and have our being. Now here's the cosmological reality to all this. Because Yahweh is absolute reality, because he's absolute reality, 
He has an absolute claim over all of reality, including you, me, and the rest of the 8 billion people who occupy this blue marble with us. As Abraham Kuyper famously said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine, mine. Now, as fully grown autonomous adults, no one has the right and authority to demand absolute trust, obedience, and surrender in every realm of your life. That is, no one but the Lord. No one but Yahweh. Only He can place such imperatives on our lives. And what are those imperatives? That's what we're going to see this morning. Look down at verse 5 with me. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. First, we're to trust the Lord. How? With all of our hearts. With all of our hearts. As modern readers, we tend to see the heart simply as the seat of human emotions. That's why we're going to start seeing hearts appearing everywhere with Valentine's Day quickly approaching, right? However, in the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, the ancient Hebrew concept of the heart is far more complex and nuanced than simple emotions. The Hebrew concept of the heart, as one commentator puts it, is the center and wellspring of the inner life. Dallas Willard expounded on this saying, heart refers to its position in the human being as the center or core to which every other component of the self owes its proper functioning. In other words, the heart is not only the seat of our emotions, but also our intellect and our will. It is the reality of, of your inner life, the source of all of your executive functioning. Your heart is who you are. Are. And we are to trust the Lord. How? With all of our hearts. Why? When it comes to trusting the Lord, you, you can't compartmentalize your heart. You can't compartmentalize your heart. You, you can't compartmentalize who you are when it comes to trusting God. Incidentally, this is why the Sermon on the Mount was so radical. It wasn't enough to abstain from adultery. Jesus taught that even harboring adulterous thoughts was itself adultery. The Sermon on the Mount took the, the, the cosmic principles of these two verses and applied it to everyday life to show that, that the faith we claim to follow places an absolute claim upon our heart. It places an absolute claim upon our lives. It is not merely religion. It is the totality of our life in devotion to the creator of the cosmos. Proverbs 3.5 is a call to trust from the reality of our inner life. With all of our hearts. The imperative, trust in the Lord with all of your heart, is nothing short than the total alignment of your interior life, intellect, emotion, and will with God. 
To trust the Lord with all your heart is to take every facet and fiber of your being and to place it solely in his care for his plans and his purposes. Now, this imperative is accompanied by an exhortation to not lean on your own understanding. Trust the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Let's pause here for a moment to make sure we're hearing what this proverb is saying and, 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 and not what it's not saying. It's not saying that you should check your brain at the door. It's not saying that there's no need for you to engage your intellect and think critically about issues. The book of Proverbs is, is all about engaging your intellect. It's the wisdom of Solomon after all, right? So, so then what is this proverb getting at when it tells us not to lean on our own understanding? What is it getting at? Well, all the commentators will, will tell you something like this. To, to lean on your own understanding is to act as your own intellectually arrogant moral compass. It's to act as your own intellectually arrogant moral compass. When you lean on your own understanding, not only are you failing to trust the Lord, you're saying this. You're saying my perspective is intellectually and morally superior to the Lord's. That's what it means to lean on your own understanding. Now, we would never do that, right? We're good Christians. No one in this, no one in this room would, would ever say that, right? I once preached a, a sermon that got a lady pretty worked up. She was uh, quite upset with me. Why? Well, for all the reasons this woman could be upset with me, and a lot of you have known me for a long time, I, I can give you a lot of reasons to be upset with me, right? But for all the reasons this woman was upset with me, she was upset with me because I quoted Jesus. I am not making this up. I am not making this up. Now, in her defense, the quote was every red-blooded American's favorite memory verse, Matthew 22, verse 21. How did Jesus respond to the Pharisees when they asked him about paying taxes to Caesar? Render unto Caesar what is? Caesar's. Now, this person took great offense to this verse and offered many justifications for why it was okay for her to cheat on her taxes. Now, what was she doing when she came up to me? What was she doing? She was, in effect, saying, my perspective is intellectually and morally superior to Jesus' perspective. Now, she probably wouldn't have said it that way, right? But for all intents and purposes, that's what she was saying. That is a perfect example of what it means to lean on your own understanding, to, to, to orientate your heart, the center and wellspring of your inner life, according to your own intellectually arrogant moral compass. So we are to trust the Lord. How? With all of our hearts, with our full devotion. But there's another thing we must do. Look down at verse 6. In all of your ways, acknowledge Him. 
In all of your ways, acknowledge him. We are to acknowledge the Lord. How? In all of our ways. Commentators tell us that to acknowledge in the Proverbs goes well beyond simple acknowledgement. It's more intimate and familiar than that. Derek Kidner in his uh, commentary on the Proverbs says, acknowledge is quite simply no. Which contains not only the idea of, of acknowledging, but the much richer content of being aware of and having fellowship with. You see, there is a relational aspect to acknowledging God. More than a religious obligation or duty, acknowledging God is to know God in every part of your life. To know him in every part of, of your life. Again, to, to paraphrase Kuiper, th- there is not a square inch in the whole domain of your life over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. As a follower of Christ, you cannot compartmentalize your life into secular and sacred. Why? Because it's all sacred. It's all sacred. Every square inch of it belongs to Him. We are to acknowledge, to know Him in all of our ways. And ways simply means all of our conduct. All our thoughts, all our plans, all our relationships, all our business dealings, all our personal investments, all of our all ours. It's every aspect of our lives. Well, think about it. If we're called to trust the Lord with all of our heart, with all our intellect, emotion, and will, then it only makes sense that all of our intellect, emotion, and will should come to bear upon our ways, and our ways should conform to the way of Christ. We're at that time of year when we're setting new resolutions for the upcoming year, right? Now, there's nothing wrong with that, as Cindy explained to us. There's nothing wrong with that. However, to Cindy's point, in the making of new resolutions, it would be wise for us to acknowledge the Lord. It'd be wise for us to acknowledge the Lord. But, but how much do we actually really do that? How much do we really do that? Are we really considering him in all of our ways? In all of our ways, are we acknowledging him? Now, this question runs much deeper than resolutions. This question cannot be reduced to something as simple and trite as as the making of a New Year's resolution. If that were the case, then we could all just resolve to read the Bible a little bit more. We would gain a little bit more piety at a relatively little expense to ourselves and, and feel quite a bit better about our walk with Jesus. Chapter a day keeps the devil away. Listen, to acknowledge the Lord in all of your ways runs so much deeper than a silly resolution. Consider the Apostle James's infamous antidote In chapter 4 of his epistle, James writes, 
Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, engage in business, and make a profit. You do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will, do, uh, we will live and also do this or that. But that as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. James's little parable is a call for us to think rationally about our place in the universe. It calls us to consider our time. It calls us to consider our choices. It calls us to consider our goals. And it calls us to consider all these things under the greater consideration of, of our finite position in the cosmos and his infinite position over the cosmos. James's parable is a cosmic reality check. It is a cosmic reality check revealing who we are in light of who God is. James illustrates perfectly why we must trust with all our heart. Why we can't lean on our own understanding. Why we must acknowledge the Lord in all of our ways. We are just a mist that appears for a little while and then it vanishes. We're temporal beings. And if we're going to find any lasting hope for our lives, then we absolutely have to find our identity in our relationship to the divine. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, that was all backstory. Now we're getting to the sermon. If we're honest with ourselves, there's probably something about all of this that rubs us the wrong way. There's probably something about all this that rubs us the wrong way. You see, there is a reason why these two verses are in the Bible. Why are they here? Why are they here? Because we need them here. Why do we need them here? Well, because none of this comes naturally. None of this comes naturally. It's not natural to trust the Lord with all of your heart. It is natural to lean on your own understanding. It's not natural to acknowledge the Lord in all of your ways. It's, it's natural to, to want to do your own thing. To want to do you. To live completely independently. I mean, think about it. How many times has the Lord said forgive, but you didn't want to let go of the grudge that you held against your husband? How many times has the Lord said, stop gossiping, but you didn't want to stop running people down behind their backs? How many times has the Lord said, stop lying, but you couldn't resist the urge to push another apocryphal story to save some face or, or gain some clout? How many times has the Lord said, follow me, I know the way, but you didn't want to stop dead in your tracks doing about face and Follow him. Now listen to me. You're not alone in this. It's natural. It's natural. What was the temptation of the fall? What was the temptation of the fall? Right? Serpent comes to Eve. Fruit's hanging there on the tree. What's he say to her? In the day you eat from it, 
your eyes will be open and you will be like who? Like God. Like God. And what's the implication of that temptation? You've heard me say this a thousand times. If I am like God, then I don't need God. If I'm like God, then I don't need God. Every person on this earth Every person sitting in this room was born with the overwhelming desire to be their own God. To be in command of their own destiny. To be beholden to absolutely no one. Every single one of us. We see this all the time when people make statements like, I can't believe in a God who would... X, Y, Z, you fill in the blank. I can't believe in a God who would X, Y, Z. What an arrogant statement that is. What a painfully arrogant statement that is. Listen, a God who exists is dependent, the God whose existence is dependent upon a single person's perspective is not much of a God, is he? When you, can, when you say, I can't believe in a God who would X, Y, or Z, you, what you're really saying, what you're essentially saying is this. You're saying, I can't believe in a God who's not me. Now, as faithful believers, we might scoff at statements like that. But here's the thing. We can be every bit, of, every bit as guilty of drawing similar conclusions. We're just not as forthright about it. We're just not as honest about it. In modern evangelical culture, in churches like ours, it is getting harder and harder and harder to preach the Sermon on the Mount. It is. Frankly, evangelicals don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear it. They have little room in their heart for the most important sermon ever preached. And I'm not talking about some culturally Christian evangelicals down south somewhere. We, the frozen chosen of New England, do not want to hear it. We do not want to hear the Sermon on the Mount. Sorry if this makes you uncomfortable, but we don't. We do not want to hear, love your enemies. We do not want to hear, pray for those who persecute you. We do not want to hear, turn the other cheek. We do not want to hear, go the extra mile. And we certainly don't want to hear, forgive as you have been forgiven. We don't want to hear, stop storing up treasures on earth. It's all going to rust away. It doesn't matter. It's worthless junk. We don't want to hear that. We don't want to hear you, you, you can't serve both God and money. We don't want to hear, stop judging those who sin differently than you. We don't. We don't want to hear any of this. Now, we might be coming out, we might not be coming out and, 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 and saying it, but our ways are betraying us. Our ways are betraying us. And by our behavior, we are saying, I can't believe in a God 
who would X, Y, and Z. Why? Because we're leaning on our own understanding. We're failing to acknowledge. Every person sitting in this room was born with the overwhelming desire to be their own personal Lord and Savior. Me included. To be in command of our own destiny. And you know what? That doesn't go away overnight just because you gave your life to Jesus. Right? I mean, why do you think Romans 12.1 is in the Bible? Right? Romans 12.1 says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by what? The mercies of God to do what? Present your bodies as what? A living and holy sacrifice, which is what? Acceptable to God and your spiritual service of worship. A living sacrifice. A living sacrifice. A life of devoted service and dependence upon the Lord. That's not easy. That's not easy. It's certainly not natural. I'm sure you have heard it said that the problem with a a living sacrifice is it can get up off the altar. Right? You've probably heard that before. You know, the chief temptation that we face as Christians is the temptation to step down off the altar. And the greatest sign of Christian piety, true Christian piety, is to lay ourselves back down on that altar again and again and again and again and again. There is a profound reality to this. To acknowledge the Lord in all of your ways to some degree means to be rubbed the wrong way. It means confronting the sinner we were born as to live as the child of God we were created to be. Our faith will continually lead us into new areas of discomfort because our faith is a transforming faith that is continually leading us from one degree of glory to another. It is a process. It's what we call sanctification. If you read your daily bread every morning and you feel just dandy, then you are far too easily satisfied. If you read Scripture and it never rubs you raw, something is profoundly wrong. Jacob did not dance with the angel. Jacob wrestled with the angel and he walked away with a limp. If you don't walk with a limp, then it is highly unlikely that you are walking with God. Because an encounter with God will rub you the wrong way. And the face of Christ, as that veil is removed, we are transformed from one degree of glory to another. Why? Because we have no choice but to be. To encounter the divine in Christ requires transformation. Certainly if we're going to stay there. Well, Cindy kind of stole my last point, but I'm going to make it anyway. Good job, by the way. We're to uh, trust the Lord with all of our heart, not lean on our understanding. 
and we're going to acknowledge him in all of our ways. And we do these things. If we do these things, there's a promise here for us. The last half of verse 6 says, He will make your paths straight. He will make your path straight. Now this sermon, this could be a pretty ominous sermon. I'm not going to lie. I was just like, oh, I don't know about this one. It's going to be a pretty ominous sermon. If it wasn't for this reality, Jesus Christ, we just celebrated this, right? Jesus Christ, God incarnate, came to this earth to make a way for us. To make a way for us to live in the power of God. He did not leave us to, to struggle through all of this by our own devices. He empowered us through the resurrection. He gave us new life. And here is the absolute beauty of all of this. In our independence, we turned away from God, wanting to live on our own. And we got a raw deal. Because the reality is we were created for fellowship with the creator of the cosmos. And in that fellowship, we have completeness. We have life that we could never, ever imagine. Now, now this, this life here, it's, it's always going to be a little difficult, right? We're still dealing with that principle, that sin that's in work in us, and, and, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we're putting that, that principle of, of sin and the deeds of the flesh to death. And as we've already established, that takes time. But we're not in it alone. We're in it with Christ. And we have fellowship with the creator of the universe. And to Cindy's point, it's him that we have the joy and the hope of depending on each and every day. We're never in it alone. We're in it with him. Amen? All right, let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you for coming. Thank you for coming. Thank you so much for putting a face on God. A face that we can stare into, draw comfort from, support from. A face that, that we can be transformed from one degree of glory to another as we stare into that beautiful face. Lord, we thank you for not leaving us without any guidance, but you have left your word and you have left your spirit who brings about the remembrance of all the words. And so, Lord, this morning I pray that you would take this little hard candy, that you would bury it deep in our hearts, and that we would savor it for the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years, however many more years were left in this world. And I pray that you would use it to transform us again from one degree of glory to another. Amen.